Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, pressure mounts on the federal government to act on the situation in long-term care facilities. The government owns Rivera, the second largest long-term care provider in Canada. It's for-profit and it's facing a $50 million lawsuit for negligence. What is the government doing to protect seniors in the long-term care home that they own? The government discusses spending millions on promoting travel within Canada. I think this is an aspirational announcement that says, you know, better times are coming and the money we were going to spend on on luring foreigners to Canada, uh, instead we're going to spend uh, on convincing Canadians it's a good time for a, a staycation. And what effect could our relationship with China have on Canada's bid for a seat on the UN Security Council. We have continued uh, to put Canadian interests and Canadian principles at the forefront of everything we do around the world, including with China. It's Monday, June the 1st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by CPAC's executive producer, Peter Van Dusen. Peter, thank you for being with us. Hi, Mark. Good to talk to you. As a new week begins, there's a new schedule uh, for the proceedings on Parliament Hill. Just walk us through what that means, and then we'll get into some of the issues that are likely to be at the top of the agenda. Well, it formalizes the motion, uh, which was passed last week. So it formalized. This will be the first week of the four-day hybrid uh, sittings, which we'll have from now until uh, June 17th. So it, it, it adds an extra day, and uh, it adds the... the uh, the hybrid portion, and and that'll be uh, how it'll be every week going forward. It also loosens a little bit of the rules on what they can talk about. It's still the the Special Parliamentary Committee on COVID-19, but it relaxes the rules to the extent that that opposition members can ask about issues other than just the pandemic. So we may see uh, a, a larger focus on the relationship with China, a uh, larger focus on other issues, but we'll still have lots of questions about the government's handling of, of uh, the response to the to the pandemic. And in that category, of course, there are many questions about long-term care facilities and what's next for them. There are many federal politicians saying there's a role for the federal government in this, but of course there are jurisdictional boundaries around this. Long-term care facilities uh, are a provincial jurisdiction. So where do you see this issue going next? Well, I think the I think the arguments are getting pretty clearly defined on 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 the two sides. In fact, there's not much light between them. I mean, the federal government says something's got to be done. Uh, the prime minister has suggested that uh, the federal government's prepared to put more money into health care, in particular into, into long-term uh, care homes. Uh, but he acknowledges its provincial jurisdiction, and the provinces all insist that it's provincial jurisdiction. So uh, they're on the same page about who's driving that bus. I guess the, the broader question for me is, okay, how how quickly can we expect change, and how will that change come? So I, I think at some point the federal government's going to what, – what's the leadership role it could play? I mean, a lot of people are calling on it to take a uh, – the prime minister to take a greater leadership role, but it, it, it gets very tricky – when you get into the federal provincial jurisdictional stuff, because, you know, if you look at where things are right now, the relationship between the prime minister and all the provinces and the premiers dealing uh, through the pandemic has has been pretty good. And I think the liberals would like to to carry that on beyond the pandemic. And this is going to be the likely the number one issue. And it's going to come down to a simple demand by the provinces, give us more money. We know how to fix it. And from the federal government, the decision the prime minister is going to have to make, is it just about more money or is it more money with conditions? And 
that will uh, that will introduce a lot of things into the debate. Uh, does it have to be a, a public only system? And it's interesting that we don't have for profit hospitals, and a lot of people are saying it's time to put long term care homes uh, under that same umbrella. Uh, take the profit motive out of long term care homes, but. I mean, Canadians will not tolerate uh, a, a, a three years of inquiries and three years of inaction waiting for inquiries. And I think, Mark, if any Canadian that's followed this story and it's been in front of every Canadian for, for weeks and weeks now, everybody knows what the problem is and everybody knows what the solutions are. The question is to get the government to move quickly on it. It's all There's no need to go back in and find out that there's a problem of spacing uh, in long-term care homes, and when a pandemic hits, spacing's a problem. There are four and six people to a room in some cases. That can't that can't happen. Uh, the workers are underpaid in in many cases. Often there aren't proper pandemic plans. There aren't. There's not proper food. There's not pro- there's staffing shortages. So it's not like we need an, another inquiry uh, to tell us what's wrong in long-term care homes. The demand will be to fix it and fix it fast. And I suppose there will be big questions about the cost, especially at a time when the government doesn't have a lot of money uh, and is borrowing a ton of money just to get through this crisis. Yeah, I suppose the flip side of that is if you're going to be uh, $300 billion in debt, uh, why not be $330 billion in debt and have a plan for long-term care homes? Uh, that's the other side of the argument, and uh, you know, I'm not sure how how much strength that argument would have, but people will make it to say, look, at if you've spent this much to get through a pandemic, go ahead and fix the problem so we don't have it in long-term care homes again. Yeah. You spent this much already, spend what's needed now to get it right. The government is talking about spending millions of dollars to encourage some travel within Canada this summer. Uh, I find this interesting because I know that uh, a lot of people are concerned about uh, the economy for uh, for, for, uh, uh, travel-related businesses, uh, but at the same time, they're not itching to go traveling in a time of pandemic either. So what specifically will the government be encouraging Canadians to do? Do we know that yet? Yeah, I don't think we know yet. I think we'll have to. I think this is an aspirational announcement that says, you know, better times are coming and the money we were going to spend on on luring foreigners to Canada, uh, instead we're going to spend uh, on convincing Canadians it's a good time for a a staycation. But, you you know, uh, what does that mean? Do do we, you know, what does it mean and when does it happen? If we're still seeing relatively high, uh, you know, COVID cases each day in, in Quebec and Ontario. Do we want those people from those provinces going back and forth? Uh, do we want people from, you know, uh, and, and if everybody decides they're going to try and travel around Ontario, if you live in Ontario, uh, is there accommodation for that? Is there safe accommodation for that? And the bigger question is just when the timing, when's any of that supposed to happen? I don't know too many people who are planning any kind of vacation that's beyond their backyard at this point. Yeah, neither do I. All right, another potential decision that the federal government faces around uh, the coronavirus situation is what to do about the National Hockey League. Uh, I know this isn't uh, a top concern for some Canadians, but there are many Canadians who are anxious to see the return of professional hockey. And there's an issue of if it does return in the format the NHL is prescribing, and if a Canadian city is one of the hubs where games would take place, what happens when teams are traveling back and forth across the border? Do they have to quarantine or will they be exempted from that? What do you think the government's appetite is to take on this issue? 
Well, I don't, it's probably not great, but I don't think they'll have any choice but uh, to take it on because you're looking at a, a couple, you know, two of the, I guess the three three hub cities in Canada are, are possibilities for for the NHL playoff format are Toronto, Edmonton, and Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver has been very clear that it, you know, uh, the Premier John Horgan uh, wants to be very careful. He wants to see the the NHL plan for how they plan to travel in and out of Vancouver and quarantine and so on. But he doesn't sound like a Premier who's, uh, you know, uh, ready. Uh, too quickly to relax or provide any special treatment for the NHL in terms of quarantine. His job, he said, his number one job is to keep the people of BC safe. Uh, you get that. And on the other hand, in Alberta, they seem to be looking at ways to try and make this happen. And they've looked at different plans about, uh, you know, self, you know, taking a team essentially as a, uh, you know, a 50-person family, if I can put it that way, and saying, okay, you're going to have a, you're going to have a bubble around you uh, everywhere you go, from the hotel to the rink. Uh, the league's going to be required to test. Uh, you probably, you know, you'll be restricted in your movements so that we can limit where you go. Uh, but it was interesting when the, when this sort of came up, uh, somebody I was talking to said, you know, the the, the one thing uh, because it's a fairness issue, right, Mark? It's why should they be treated any differently than the rest of Canadians yeah. who have to quarantine and are not allowed to travel? But said to me, you know, the one thing where Canadians, the one the one group that Canadians might be able to relax their uh, their equality and fairness argument for might be the NHL and hockey. So we'll see where this goes. I think a lot of Canadians want to see hockey back, but um, it'll depend on, you know, they'll have to be convinced that the plans, that goes for the government, obviously, they'll have to be convinced that the plans put in place uh, absolutely guarantee uh, the safety of everybody involved. Meanwhile, Canada continues to look for a seat on the UN Security Council. Uh, there have been many efforts and many discussions that have happened in recent weeks about that. Where do you see that issue going this week? I think you can't look at this issue. Um, there'll be lots of questions in the House this week about the relationship with China. I don't think you can look at this issue beyond uh you know, uh, the impact of the relationship with China. It, it occurs to me in, in, in watching this bit in normal times, Mark, with the, the kind of unrest we're seeing in the world, particularly, you know, between China and the United States, uh, one would have thought that would be a good argument for a country like Canada to have a seat at the table for the honest broker image uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we, we can uh, close gaps between countries, a, a good international reputation for the most part. Uh, but when you're, you know, so the relationship with Canada and China is probably not a whole lot better than the uh, worse or better than the relationship with the U.S. and uh, U.S. and China. So it, when countries might have been saying, you know, let's get Canada at that table because they can act uh, to try and bring these sides together. Well, Canada has a miserable relationship right now with China. So I'm not sure whether that that's a vote getter, the idea that Canada could help out uh, to bridge any differences. And I think the other thing to watch for is, uh, you know, we've, we've been waiting to see what kind of retaliation China will bring to bear for the BC court decision uh, last week to allow the extradition uh, process against uh, Meng Wanzhou to continue. And I think people are waiting to see, okay, well, what kind of retaliation is, is China going to exercise? And maybe that's 
part of what it will be is is you know, Canada needs a lot of votes from African countries to try and win that seat, and China's got a, a, a large and growing influence with African countries. And will that be one of the ways that China punishes Canada is to make the message clear to these African countries that all this support they're getting from China, uh, you know, faces the potential of drying up if if there's any support for Canada. Mm. All right, Peter, great to have your comments on all these topics today. Thank you for joining us. All right, Mark, great to talk to you. We'll talk soon. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. We have continued uh, to put Canadian interests and Canadian principles at the forefront of everything we do around the world, including with China. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Robin Sears argues, we have tried private diplomacy with China for more than 18 months. And now it's time to go public. Sears writes, We need to be far more engaged with like-minded allies in applying maximum pressure on China. The struggle to force China to accept the costs, obligations, and responsibilities of a superpower requires different tactics than the political and economic levers to restrain the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But two things have not changed since that global battle— Such a campaign can work only with the closest unity of strategy and tactics by the greatest number of nations, and by carefully choosing a short list of vulnerable targets of pressure wisely. In Maclean's Amir Adaran argues, Canada has bungled the COVID-19 endgame. Adaran writes, Our progress on bending the curve is halting and unimpressive compared to Europe and Asia. Our testing is so broken down that it lags behind Rwanda's and Ethiopia's. Our epidemiological data is so inadequate that even if we wanted to conduct the endgame well, often we cannot. Places like Toronto and Quebec are reopening too soon, while the Maritimes and Prairies are reopening too slowly, strangling the economy. Simply put, Canada is bungling its most significant peacetime crisis in a century. In the Globe and Mail, Christopher Reagan and Andrew Potter argue engineering a green recovery is a terrible idea. They write, Based on what we're hearing from Ottawa, there will soon be a massive stimulus package aimed at restarting the economy, and it will be dominated by the Liberal Party's climate change agenda. The Liberals have done a good job dealing with the economic fallout of the pandemic, but they should resist the temptation to design a conventional economic stimulus package until it is absolutely clear that one is necessary. And they should avoid costly policies that involve picking winners and rely instead on a rising carbon price to do its job. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the Sultan of Oman and the President of Guatemala, followed by a news conference to provide an update on the COVID-19 situation. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, June the 1st. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.